Hello and happy Friday, everyone. This is Steph Lee, the founder of Host Agency Reviews. It is Friday at 12 noon, which means it is time for our Friday 15, where we get to answer your industry questions. Um, and this week, we have someone really exciting on board with us as a co-host. And not only because their name is Stephanie, which is also very fun, but and not only because she's a gardener like me and we're both like gardening fiends. Um, but also because Stephanie is very knowledgeable. She helped us out with um, host agency reviews when we were going through some trademark stuff. So um, I would like to welcome our co-host. We have Stephanie Kwong, a patent attorney over at DBC Law. Hey, Stephanie, how are you? Hey, I'm good. Thank you for having me. Oh, nice so to see you. Yeah, I'm so excited. We were Before we came on, we were just talking. We're both in Minnesota and everything's brown and dead right now. And I asked her, like, how's the gardening going? But she actually has, like, some dwarf irises that popped up, mm -hmm. which yeah. is miraculous. And I might have to get some of those now. Uh, well, let's see, before we jump into questions, the first thing I wanna say is just a quick, um, those of you that follow HAR know that we do an annual travel advisor survey where we kind of ask all sorts of questions, including what types of fees you're charging, uh, what your income is like and where the income is coming from, how much is coming from commissions versus fees. Um, so that is actually going live. So it is, let's see, today is Friday. And if you go to hostagencyreviews.com slash survey, you'll be able to start taking the survey there. It'll be open for two months and we will most certainly be talking with you more about that in the future. So keep an eye out for that. And Stephanie, let's get into our first question. All right, let's have it. All right. Um, so this is for people like me that are a little bit confused. Um, we had one come in that says, what's the difference between a copyright, trademark, and service mark? Um, and then the second part of the question is, which should an agency use when trying to protect their agency name? So let's start with the difference between a copyright, trademark, and service mark. Dumb it down. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, no problem. And I, I guess the first thing is to to state my legal disclaimer because oh, I am an attorney. And that's basically just to remind everyone that this is not specific legal advice. This is just generalized background information. And certainly every situation is gonna require specific advice. But to um, get to I, mean, I have to ask you, I have to ask you a question before. Go ahead. Now. Does that ever get old having to say that every time you like are talking anywhere and be like <laughs> So no. listen to me, but don't listen to me too much and take it too seriously, but definitely listen to me. <laughs> no, no, it, it doesn't come up as many times as you think it might. Uh, gotcha. Okay. So yes. Break all it right. Down for so us. Back to that question. Yeah. I think that there generally is a lot of confusion about all the different types of intellectual property and what's most appropriate for what your objective is. So trademarks, those are used to identify goods and services and can really be anything that has that source indicating effect. They can include words, slogans, logos, scents, colors, like T-Mobile has a trademark for their hot pink, UPS. You can maybe imagine what uh, color they've um, registered a trademark for. <laughs> um, also sounds like NBC is a trademark. Um, certainly anytime you hear that little jingle, you know exactly um, what that means. And so yeah. that's sort of a trademark as well. Also, um, like the shape of an object. Uh, the most famous one is perhaps the Coca-Cola bottle. Um, again, that's once you see that outline, exactly. Yep. Oh. It's very distinguishing. Huh. So, um, but a common misconception I hear on the media is that 
when you file for a trademark, you're requesting to, quote, own a word, and that's really not the case. The rights that are obtained for a mark are really limited to those that have source indicating properties and are going to be limited by a lot of factors like the goods and services that are listed in the application. Um, so a lot of times there's limiting disclaimers for descriptive terms or anything that's generic terms. Like anything that's generic. Well, we're very that's descriptive. A whole, that's a whole other uh, ball of wax, but yeah. <laughs> so certainly anything that's generic is not going to be registrable as a standalone trademark for those goods and services that that mark is generic or that term is generic for. So that's why Apple, for example, has a trademark for Apple um, for goods and services like electronics and whatnot. But they don't own the word Apple, and they certainly Phew. couldn't obtain a registration for the trademark Apple for if they were to get into the fruit business. Gotcha. So service mark, um, that's a type of trademark. But instead of the mark designating a source for goods, it just designates the source of a service provider. Um, and I think the last one too is copyrights. Yeah. And those, part, those are used to protect artistic expression. So you wanna think like artwork, architecture, performances, even a podcast, the audio and the visual would both be covered under uh, copyright protections. So for your listeners, um, if they have a brand name that they use for their services, they would apply for a trademark service mark. Mm -hmm. And if they have a brand name, maybe that they would apply to a book, then they'd apply for a trademark for goods that would include books or other publications. And maybe also a copyright for any text or art, such as cover images or photographs used mm -hmm. in that book. So they would, like, if they started off and sent in a um, an application for their service mark, but they didn't have a podcast or a book out yet, would mm -hmm. they need to go then go back and kind of re-register the trademark with the idea that now we have... Um, a podcast, so it's not just a service that we're providing. We're also providing um, like a book and a product. Yep. Um, when it comes to trademarks, you can always build upon them. Okay. So if you expand your goods and services over time, or even if you need to delete, you can delete goods and services. Um, but you are always able to build upon those goods and services, assuming the scope and the area that you're wanting to expand into, um, there isn't a conflicting prior user. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So those that are tuning in, you know, I'll put a link into our article on tips for choosing a travel agency name, because one of the things we talk in is to look at the USPTO's um, trademark registry. And to make sure that there's not another agency out there with that name or something similar, um, just because of the, the problems that can come into effect with that. So we'll put a link in um, for that, which is um, has some great ideas if you're at that process right now. Um, and then, so Stephanie, when an agency uh, comes up with their name, if they want to protect their agency name, then it sounds like they need to be working with an attorney or they could do it themselves too, but we'll talk about that more later. Um, they need to be registering it as a service mark. Is that correct? That's generally going to be the recommendation. Yep. Okay, cool. Um, let's see. Let's move into our second question. And uh, 
This one is how how the heck does the trademark process work? <laughs> so well, it's not as convoluted as patents, which is nice. But um, as you mentioned, at least briefly, um, in many situations, you want to conduct a trademark clearance search to make sure that your mark is available for use before filing. Now, you can certainly go to an attorney and have them help you with that. But uh, attorneys generally are a little bit on the pricier side. So certainly what I recommend is you do a lot of that preliminary legwork yourself with good old Google. Um, you can search the trademark office yourself. That can seem a little daunting if you're inexperienced. And that's fine. Um, but just poke around. Um, poke around on Google. Poke around on the trademark website. Um, even social media and see what kind of results pop up if you think that that name is used by someone else for similar services. Because if it is, um, there's two things to keep in mind. One is that you may not be able to obtain a registration because they already have that. But let's say they don't even have uh, a mark registered and they're just using the name well, you certainly don't want to try and distinguish yourself in a way that is going to make uh, your potential customers likely confused, meaning that when they do their own Google search or tell they're told, oh, search for so-and-so um, on Facebook or whatever, if they can't easily find you, it's a problem for you and your business and your personal marketing. Yeah, definitely. So you can do your own little preliminary search. And if you think that there is a, you know, if you don't identify any conflicts, you can reach out to an attorney. And I do highly recommend that you conduct at least a knockout clearance search. Um, so it's not going to guarantee your mark is available, but um, it's going to give you a really good idea of, of how things will probably play out. Um, and just notify you of potential problems before you spend a lot of time, money, and energy launching this brand where you might have to pivot later. Um, there's also times where a search will identify a potential conflict with a much larger, scarier party. And it may be the case where you, where there isn't necessarily a conflict, but with everything, it, it depends how the other party feels about it. Yeah. They might feel that the name's too close. And maybe this company has a history of being a little aggressive or litigious. <laughs> and and you might say to yourself in, in a situation where, you know, I really want to use this name and I'm going to do so under the radar, basically. By filing a registration or an application for registration, um, most of these big companies, they're going to have um, monitoring services that are going to alert them to a lot of marks that are filed in their territory. And they might be more aggressive having then known you exist than if you simply just kind of stay ah. to the side and um, don't attempt registration. You know, it's not necessarily the best strategy. But it's those sorts of factors that are you want to really think about in advance. And yeah. Well, one of the stories within the travel industry too was um, was maybe like 15 years ago where Gap Advent or Gap the clothing line, which mm -hmm. obviously is not in the travel industry at all, they went after 
um, it's now G Adventures, but it was Gap Adventures was their name. Okay. And they went after them and won the case. And so, um, yeah, Gap Adventures became G Adventures because apparently it was too close to too close. Gap's mm -hmm. name. And someone might be trying to buy a cute pair of jeans when they're going on vacation and everyone will get confused. So, um, and, so and once then, you go ahead. Oh, I'm just so for the preliminary search is like when you're talking about is that the US um, PTO site that you're um, chatting about when, when looking besides just Googling? It really depends because okay. it depends on your scope of where you're going to be um, providing these services. Okay. Certainly for a lot of clients that I work with, we're talking about products and they're global. Mm -hmm. And so we might select a couple countries in which they're interested. Gotcha. Um, I don't know if for the listeners, this podcast are, are located in the U.S. and their services would be limited to the U.S., then you could certainly um, check that out. Restrict your, 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 yep. Um, but I suppose it's also worth noting that um, in the U.S., you have six months to claim priority to a foreign publication. So if, if under some weird circumstance or perhaps unlikely circumstance, um, someone files a similar application in another country, they would have six months then to claim priority to that foreign registration or application. Oh, interesting. And okay. so... You know, it, again, it's probably a very unlikely situation, but if you were very, very paranoid about it, you would want to search for um, a little bit broader under internet, you know, foreign and international applications. And you can do that um, via the WIPO website, W-I-P-O, World Intellectual Property Organization. Wow. And I, again, I don't know if we're getting too detailed here, but no, that's good. Well, <laughs> you, might want, you might want to contact an attorney at, the, at that stage, but that is a tool that's available if you're looking to um, level up a little bit with respect to your searching sophistication. Well, yeah, we'll put links for everyone in the um, either the description um, or the show notes. So you can take a yeah, look there. Yeah, I'll forward that on. Um, so let's say you get through all of that and you uh, everything's looking good and you want to file your application. Um, then you basically um, fill out a form and, and then about three months later, an examining attorney, it's an attorney that will be examining all the applications for trademarks at the trademark office, is going to review it for legal requirements, including uh, technical sufficiency, but also to make sure that your mark is not going to conflict with any, um, any others that are currently registered or pending. Uh, <clears throat> and then if it's allowable, uh, you will receive a notice of allowance. And that's not quite the end game, but you're getting close. So then at that stage, the trademark office publishes the proposed mark in their official gazette. And Ooh, that, that, provides, <laughs> that provides public notice and um, the opportunity for someone to object to that registration um, if they believe that there's a conflict. And so generally that period is going to be about 30 days. So it doesn't hold up things too much, but it is so, something that you got to get through in order to get that registration. And then after, if no one sees it in the Gazette and thinks that 
this shouldn't be happening, then you go ahead and if everything's okay, you get approved. Correct. Yeah. Wow. Then, they'll, then they'll give you your official registration. And so then that has to be maintained every couple, every, you know, five or so years. And so you need to continue using your mark and you need to use it consistently and um, file renewals on occasion. Okay. And if you're working with an attorney, they'll keep you abreast of all these things too. And certainly. And by the way, having gone through this, um, I will say if you're kind of on the fence on whether or not to hire an attorney for it, I would just encourage you to do a Google search of like what actual applications look like and the wording they use. It's very specific and uh, not something that I would think any travel advisor has as their secondary language that they're using. And so I would really encourage you to like when you're actually filing work with an attorney because they'll the they'll know the technicalities a lot better than you are because what Stephanie sent over to me was kind of like gibberish. I'm like, is this? Oh, I've never thought of explaining it that way. That's interesting. <laughs> so yeah, that's just kind of my experience. Take take it um as you'd like, but Let's see. Okay. So next question is how much should I expect to spend on a trademark? Oh, and we already answered how long it will take. I got ahead of myself oh. here. Well, I, I think with anything, cost really does depend on complexity. So anyone that's going to quote you a flat fee without knowing a good amount of information beforehand um, is not going to be giving your specific situation adequate consideration. So typically the searches that we discussed, um, they cost probably between $600 and $1,200. Um, it really is going to depend a lot on how distinctive your mark is, how many classes, um, and by classes I'm referring to um, the, cat, uh, the trademark office divides and categorizes each mark and, of, and the goods that are covered by it in different classes. And that makes it a lot easier for searching because you can search by class. So like mm. electronics is in one class, apparel is in one class, chemical compounds are in another class, for example. Um, so if you have a list of 100 different goods that you're providing, um, you might have quite a few classes that need to be searched in order to clear that mark. And that's obviously going to increase cost a little bit. So as for filing the mark itself, generally for one class, it's going to be in the range of about six to $800. And then about $170 more for each additional class because the uh, USPTO charges more for each additional class. Um, once an application's on file, certainly additional costs can be incurred. So for example, if the application is refused for any reason, which isn't unusual, um, oh, there's gonna be a cost associated with um, just responding and addressing that situation. And that can also delay the application issuance a little bit, you know. Um, it, you get about six months to respond to a rejection. And um, if you take all that time, and you might receive more than one too. Mm -hmm. um, so that can extend the period of time in which things are pending. Yeah, so um, like, I feel like for most travel advisors, you know, they're probably just gonna be in a couple categories because they're, mm -hmm. they're usually, don't have a huge online presence. They're usually working. Um, with more local audiences or a network they know. But um, what was my question? I was gonna ask something. Oh, so for a lot of our advisors, when they're just starting up, that's when they're probably gonna be looking at this. Is that the best time to start their application? Because it feels like you really need to have your business fleshed out before you file 
your trademark application. Otherwise, if things change, then your trademark is for the wrong thing. Is that right? Certainly. Um, I'm assuming you're referring more to a name as compared to a logo or whatnot. Logos are, I would say, are secondary marks, and those can be perhaps delayed a little bit longer. But for your name, I certainly recommend it in advance. One is you want to make sure that you're not going to likely receive a cease and desist letter in the mail. Mm -hmm. After you've sent out all of your marketing materials and email blasts and you've got your website set up and paid for your domain, I mean, the last thing you want is to get that scary cease and desist letter and then have to hire an attorney, I mean, most likely, to guide you and assist you through the process of resolving that matter. That is all sunk cost Yeah, that just you know, it's extremely frustrating and it, it's happened to clients of mine and um, and I feel for them. Um, and I'll also say that it's really nice to get your application on file because there are um, uh, there are entities out there that will well, that will perhaps, you know, file for trademark applications, um, trolls, you know, based on, trolls, basically, um, based on certain business activity that they see. And that could be filings with the Secretary of State, where they then try and get domain name URLs um, or social media handles, things like that. And it's probably not of anything to lose sleep over. But having an organized game plan with respect to all aspects of your business and brand. So, again, the trademarks, logos, all the social media handles that you're interested in, website domains, you want to have a strategy in place in advance. So you're kind of pulling the trigger all at once mm -hmm. or even you know, if there's no cost to reserve some of these things, you want to you want to do that in advance because your online presence requires so many moving parts, right? Yep. And um, and that makes things a lot more complex these days. Yeah, and the other thing I'll say too is there's, um, I feel like once I registered with the Secretary of State or something, because then it's public record and you know people are watching these, then you'll notice an increase in your, your mail that you get for people on trademarks and different things. They'll be There'll be all sorts of mail that you're getting, um, but I would work with someone more reputable than someone that's scouring the um, that's scouring the business listings that are new to the Secretary of State. So, um, okay. So, last question here: um, What are the three biz three biggest mistakes you see non patent attorneys doing when submitting their? Oops, or sorry non-trademark attorneys doing when submitting their trademark applications for their business. So what mistakes should we watch out for? I think, um, you know, you kind of hinted upon this, but it's not understanding the legal significance of the fields of data that you're entering. Um, for example, uh, dates of first use, your first use in commerce are dates you're going to have to specify, specify. And these fields have, I mean, they seem... Really straightforward and yeah, simple on their do. face. The application looks so easy. <laughs> there, there's very, very specific legal significance to those terms. And um, many applicants that try and do this themselves, they don't understand that they're entering technically inaccurate data. 
Um, and fields, most fields too, they can't be changed after the filing. So if they're inaccurate, oh, your resulting registration, it's invalid. It's unenforceable. And at that point, it's more of a liability than an asset. Mm -hmm. um, and then if you have to start the process over again, you lose your priority date of your filing, of your original filing, and you're incurring a lot of additional expense. Mm -hmm. So it's the kind of thing where every single little field, make sure you do a significant amount of research to really understand exactly what that means and what the requirements are to meet that legal definition mm -hmm. so that you don't fall into those pitfalls. Um, Another one, again, you kind of hit on it as well, is, is uh, a failure to identify official trademark correspondence from solicitations. <laughs> and um, well, it's really unfortunate. I know the FCC is, is trying to curb some of this activity, but when you file for a trademark application, your mark and your name and your contact information is all publicly available. And there are lots of people that want to try and make money in a really scammy way off of that information by sending you communications through the mail, typically that look really official. Sometimes email, they look really official. There's a seal and it talks about us trademark, Blah blah. They're and very good. Just, They're very and they good. They reference all the information from your registration, and you might not realize that that is all publicly available, and think that oh, the the trademark office is corresponding with me, and they want me to pay this fee to be on this. You know, it, it looks like an official fee, and it's really really scammy. And I can almost say with certainty that if you file your registration, you're going to get some of that correspondence, and don't fall for it. It's, it's yeah, all read them carefully. Really, really carefully. Yeah, um, with a magnifying is. glass because the, it's really tricky. Yeah. Um, a lot of this, this, uh, there's a lot of work left to be done, I think, by the government to really just ax these companies. There, there um, is usually something within the notes I noticed, but it's very hard to find. Uh, that'll say, like, this is not an official government document or something. Mm -hmm. but you know, you're, you're reading through. Like, They're designed to be tricky. Yeah. So yeah, be really, really critical. And um, as for my third one, I would say not conducting that trademark clearance search first, at least mm -hmm. a knockout search to, to get a good picture of what else is out there. Um, I, I represent some foreign clients that then file, they have their marks filed overseas and then they, they use me to file their corresponding U.S. application. And, and they don't do these knockout searches first. And then it's like we get these horrible, horrible rejections. And it's like you just don't have anywhere to go. And now that other party is probably aware of what you're trying to do. And again, you're on their radar. And it's just it's a, a doggy dog money. world. It, it, it's just a waste of money in my in my opinion. It may be one of those things where you're like, well, I don't have to file a clearance search. And I mean, that does cost some money. But the headaches that six hundred to twelve hundred dollars can save you is really significant, and it's also possible that, too, um, if you identify a potentially conflicting mark, you can before you file your registration very specifically tailor yours to maybe choose 
words that are equally as appropriate, but just more uh, distinguishing. So it allows you to craft your application in a way where maybe a problem will no longer be a problem anymore. Yeah, that's... And um, there's a lot of value in that. Again, it, it's it's about being uh, less short-sighted when it comes to those the expenditures, basically. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, thank you, Stephanie, for answering these questions. I know um, that helped clarify some things for me. So if people are interested in reaching out to you with some questions or want to work with you, what's the best way to contact you? I think email is probably the best. Um, so it's skwong at dbclaw.com. And I'm assuming we can put that in the notes as well. Yeah, we'll put that in the notes. And it, it's not dbclaw like I thought for years, <laughs> which is so stupid. I was just telling Stephanie before we jumped on. I was like, I don't know why I never figured out that that was law at the end. <laughs> um, I'm just well, that fierce, right? <laughs> I guess so. Um, all right. So thank you for tuning in, everyone. If you haven't already, check out our um, our Travel Agent Chatter podcast just dropped last week or maybe the week before. But if you haven't tuned into that, we interview Lori Berg, who is mostly a Disney advisor, but she's got great advice on not only Disney, but systemization um, and how to turn a low profit uh, product into higher profit. And then she talks about remote team building. Uh, and how she builds her team and builds the spirit behind it. And then small tweaks she's made to her website that increase the sale. So if you haven't checked that out, check out the podcast feed. Or if you're on YouTube, check out our Travel Agent Chatter playlist. And you'll see Lori's up on top. So Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us again. And thank you everyone for tuning in. We will see you next Friday at 12 p.m. Central Time. Thank you. Guys.